I don't consider myself a musician. I played trumpet from junior high, high school and college. I messed around with the guitar for a while, but uh, hardly anything that anybody would take pride in. But I wonder, how many people here have played something? I mean, you've taken lessons, you've done some accordion, juice harp, something. What, okay, take just a second. I think they're more than this. Look to the person next to you and let them know what you, what you took lessons in or what you've played. Go ahead. Just let's learn something about each other this morning. You know, I've, again, I've not a musician, but I've always been intrigued by music. Actually, I was working on a master's thesis one time on music in the Old Testament. Uh, I abandoned that thing after about a gazillion hours. But but the uh, deal was with this thing for me is I was so intrigued on the psychology of music, what it does to us. Because music has got an incredible power over us. It can reach into our lives like nothing else can. You know, scary movies add music to make things scarier, right? And Hallmark movies add music to make things sadder. Uh, there are there's wedding music that makes us cry and it makes us feel mushy, I suppose. There's uh, dance music and national anthems that make us feel patriotic. And there's music that uh, makes us uh, grieve with funeral dirge type things. Music that makes us agitated. Music has a way of, of doing things w- with us, uh, to us. You know, King Saul, remember this? He was demonized. And he would call in David to play his harp for him, and the music would soothe his soul. I know when, when before we were married, Teresa would come home from work uh, discouraged and depressed sometimes. I think it was she was depressed because we weren't married yet, but she just said it was because her work was hard. But either way, she'd come home, she'd light some candles, and she would put on George Winston piano stuff. Because it was melancholy. It worked with her spirit and, and her heart. Music has a way of doing things with us, getting down to the deepest part of our soul. It's called the the language of the soul. Uh, The problem with music or the danger with music is because it can reach so deep. um, If it has words, if it has a message, that message can also go deeper. And a subliminal sort of way, in a subtleness, that it could impact us in a major, major way. We're not even aware of it. Now, this is one of the reasons why praising is such a good thing. And so folk who think, I'm not going to praise because I can't carry a tune, I don't like that song, or they hurt themselves spiritually. Because music is a gift from God. It just has a power on us. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because it's getting close to the Christmas season, And we're going to be hearing lots of Christmas music in the malls and everywhere else. Christmas music has always been a huge part of our tradition. It's a huge market, actually. Everybody seems to have a Christmas album. You know, Bing Crosby's got his white Christmas and Justin Bieber's got his, you know, under the mistletoe and Motley Crue's got their Christmas card from hell. And, you know, just everybody's got something out there. And I, I really don't know if Motley Crue has a Christmas album, but if they had one, I'm sure it would probably be labeled that. Music has a way of shaping our thinking. And so what we just need to know, a question I have for me, a question I have for us as we get into this this season, is how much of my thinking, how much of my understanding of Christmas has been shaped by that type of music? Now, let's do just a a little bit of a, a historical thing for just a second because this works in with the music that's part of our tradition as Americans. Um... 
and as believers. There are two worlds of Christmas, really. We just need to be conscious of that. There are two worlds of Christmas, and both of these worlds have kind of come together in a synergistic sort of relationship to give us what we have. There is the pagan world. And if you look back, as far as you can look back, it seems that whole civilizations of people had some sort of festival around December 21st, you know, the winter solstice, shortest day of the year. All kinds of different groups over uh, the history of mankind, to our knowledge, have celebrated there, maybe because it was the shortest day of the year, and they would pray that their gods, whoever they would be, would send the sun back and would send life. And, and because of this time of, of deadness, they would bring out um, evergreens and de- de- decorate evergreens with their gods. They would hang plants that are green at that time of year that demonstrate life. There would be feasting. Well, it was in 264 that the Roman Emperor Aurelian declared December 25th as the festival of the unconquered sun, Mithras. And he kind of brought all that together. It was a public holiday. He had off work. And there was major celebration and gift giving and costumes and all of these kind of things. Now, that's part of the world that we have, in all honesty, because some of our tradition stems back, has its origin there. I'm not saying it's demonic. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying this is part of where we, well, some of the stuff we do comes from. But then we've got a second world, and that's the, the Christian world where we celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, it's very interesting. There are some Christians that believe Jesus was really born on December 25th. Uh, their, their arguments are, are, are they're intriguing. They, they are. But the vast majority of biblical scholarship, the vast majority of church historians believe that the reason why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th was because in 336 A.D., the Western church declared that December 25th would be uh, Christmas or Christ, Christ Mass. It would, be, it would be the time we would celebrate the birth of Jesus. And most believe that the reason why they did this was because all of society, culture, was engaged in this incredibly pagan holiday. And so the church was trying to give them an alternative, the Christians, an alternative to celebrate but not have to celebrate that. It's kind of like what we did several weeks ago. Remember, we had our harvest party here. Now, it might look a little bit like a Halloween party to some people. You know, costumes and candy and games and that kind of stuff. But we didn't want to be associated with the druids and the witchcraft and all the stuff that Halloween's associated with. So we called it a harvest party. Just happened to fall on the same day that Halloween falls on. When I was a youth pastor, we had the same sort of thing, called it a hallelujah party. And basically gave the the kids an, an alternative to Halloween. It's the same sort of thing. That's why we celebrate on the 25th. And these two worlds have meshed for us. That's why we've got our stockings hung by the chimney with care and on top of the mantle you've got a nativity scene and you've got a Yule log which is a Norseman's tradition burning and you're looking at it just thankful that Jesus came to deliver you from hell and you, you've got a, an advent wreath maybe on your table or an advent candle and it's right next to the ceramic deal of a frosty you know and you've got holly all over the house and, but it's right underneath your, right over your crash and so we've got both of these worlds that have kind of meshed together and again I'm not saying that we should ignore the one but what I'm wondering for me for us When we look at our understanding of Christmas, might this picture celebrate, uh, reflect it? Do I I have to explain that? 
We got Jesus, yeah, yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, well, Christmas is Justin Bieber and Bing, and we've got the, the miracle on 34th and Scrooge. We know what Christmas is. Oh, yeah, Jesus. and Yeah, but we've got, and that's not bad, but this is what Christmas is. I wonder. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look at the very first Christmas song ever written. Not by Bing, not by, not by Bieber, uh, not by Handel, uh, but by a junior high girl. And as we look at it, we want to see if our heart reflects this as well as the tradition. Again, please don't hear me. I'm not a Scrooge. My favorite Christmas album growing up was Partridge Family Christmas. And so I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with these things. Um, but as we seek for what's most important, priority in our lives. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're in a series, uh, When the Silence Was Broken, where we mentioned that uh, when God, uh, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, God goes quiet for 400 years. This only looks like a little bit of gap in your Bible between the Old Testament and New Testament, but it's about 400 years where God is just quiet. Lots of generations of people come and go during that time where God is just quiet. No angels, no prophets, no miracles. He's just quiet. And then he, he bursts into the scene in the cry of, of, a, of, a, of a baby. In Luke chapter 1, you've got a couple of stories so far we've looked at. You've got the story of Gabriel coming to an old man in a metropolitan area, Jerusalem, uh, talking to this, this old guy, he and his wife, who couldn't have kids when they could have kids. Now they're past childbearing. The angel says, you're going to have a boy. He's going to be the forerunner. And then a second story so far we've looked at. Next one, six months later, same angel goes to visit a common peasant girl in a little farm community, a pagan influence, Gentile sort of town. And he says to her, you're going to have a baby. You're going to call him Jesus. And you remember the story of, uh, last week. She says, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've never known a man. How's this going to be? And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Most High will overshadow you so that the, the one born to you will be the Son of God. And so you can imagine Mary's probably reeling. If this happened to you, would you go, oh, cool, all right, got it. Now, we're probably freaking out a little bit on this. And, and so, so we, we pick up the story, verse 39. And this is a great one right here because what Luke does is he takes those two stories, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, and he meshes them. He brings them together. And so they come together right here. It says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Now, the question you want to ask yourself is why did Mary hurry? I mean, if you follow the rest of the story, it's not like she had something she really needed to do there. She didn't have anything she really had to accomplish there, but she was in a hurry. And that first phrase, at that time, that's like immediately after the verse before it. Now, think for just a second. We want to try to get into Mary's skin a little bit. Again, this whole ordeal between Mary and Gabriel, if we have the whole story here, what, three minutes long? And so, so, so Mary, she sees all these things. With the only two emotions we know of her is that she was afraid, fear not, and she was confused. She was bewildered. And I have a feeling that even though she heard what the angel said and she said, yeah, I got it, when it was all done, she was probably still a little bit bewildered because it says that she says in verse 38, she says, I'm the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. I can see your head's down. I, uh, may it be unto me as you said. She looks up, the angel's gone. And she's going, okay. Hello, 
what just happened? Am I been out in the sun too long? Is this, is this real? No, this can't be real. That's, I, I, and so she's probably thinking such things. She goes to bed that night, and if she can sleep at all, I don't know, but she's going to bed at night, and she's probably playing the, the tapes over and over and over and over. First, there was a came in the house, and there's this big glowing thing there, and I, I was afraid, and he said, Fear not, Mary, you're favored by God. I'm favored by God. Oh, my goodness. And then he said that, that, that you're going to have a baby, and you're going to have a son, you're going to call him Jesus. And I remember I said to him, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. And then he looked at me and he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, Mary, and the Most High is going to overshadow you, and, and you're, who's going to be born of you will be the Son of God. And then he said that, that I'm going to give him the throne of his father, David, and his kingdom will be for forever. Now that might be a little bit confusing to us, but it wasn't to Mary. Because the Jewish folk knew what this meant. They knew the Messiah was coming. And they knew that God had promised in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah was going to come through David's line. And so when she heard this, she knows, oh man, my goodness. And so I can imagine if she gets any sleep at all that night, she wakes up the next morning and she's trying to, maybe she forgets initially, right? And then, oh no, did that really happen? Did I have a dream? I can't believe I'm going to have a baby. And then she remembers something else that the angel said. If you moved up, verse... 36. He says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Now, it's interesting, Gabriel never commands Mary to go see Elizabeth. God knew what she was going to do, though. She's got to be thinking, wait a minute, Elizabeth can't be pregnant. She's an old lady. She's not, not Auntie Elizabeth. But she sees, but what if she is? Now, the reason why she didn't know, and they had a pretty strong grapevine back then, is, don't have it on the, te- in, on the screen, but if you look in verse 24, uh, Elizabeth, it says, after this, uh, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. She hid out. Nobody knew. Nobody would see her. She was hiding. So word didn't get to Mary. Mary's got to figure this out. If Elizabeth is really pregnant, then maybe this is all very true. And so she hurries. 70 miles, she hurries. The hill country just outside Jerusalem. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what kind of greeting did Mary give her? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say. But traditional Hebrew greeting would have been shalom, peace, peace on you. And so maybe Mary's playing it cool, right? Maybe she's going up to the door and knocking, knocking the door. And, oh, Elizabeth, just, hey, peace. You know, I'm just in the neighborhood. Just come stop by, say hello. What's Anything happened strange? You're gaining some weight there, huh, Elizabeth? You know, she's trying to figure this out, what's going on. Traditional greeting, maybe. Maybe she just put all the, the, spilled all the beans, right? And she's hurrying. I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't know, but try to think. These are not fake people. These are real people. And she's hurrying. She's got to get there. And maybe she's a mile away and she starts picking up her pace. And when she sees the house, she breaks into a major sprint and her heart's beating 100 miles an hour. She's got to find out because if Elizabeth is really pregnant, is this true or not? You're banging on the door and Elizabeth opens the door. Are you pregnant? You know, she says, oh, what's going on? You're not going to believe what happened to me. I'm going crazy. And whatever the greeting was, whatever the greeting was, it says the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not strange for a mom to feel her baby at, at, at six months. But there was something special here. Uh, the baby leaped in her womb. Very significant term. Talked to Dr. Beaton this week. He said 
In the six months, the baby's probably not doing a lot of leaping. Uh, here, the baby is, 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 is leaping. You know, you gotta ask yourself, what does all of that mean? Very, very interesting. If you got your Bibles, I don't have it on the screen. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, talking about John, okay, prophecy about John the Baptist, the guy that's sleeping in Elizabeth's womb. It says, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. The NIV leaves out a very important word. It's not even from birth. Literally, it's even from before birth. And so you ask yourself, why does anyone need the Holy Spirit before birth? I mean, the Holy Spirit is supposed to help you fight sin, right? There's not a lot of that going on. The Holy Spirit is supposed to remind you of the things that you've been taught of, of, of Jesus. Well, that's not happening yet. The Holy Spirit is supposed to convict of sin. Well, I don't know how much sin he's putting on in the, in the womb, so that's not going on. So you ask yourself, why do you need the Holy Spirit in the womb? This is the only time in Scripture I think this goes on. Because of this very issue. John's job is going to be, it's been prophesied, it's what he's supposed to do, it's why he was created, to bear witness of Jesus, to point people to Jesus. Isn't it amazing? The first person he points to Jesus is his mom. Well, he's in the womb. Now, now Elizabeth, keep in mind that if she would have, if Zechariah would have communicated everything to her that he had had with, between the angel and himself, if he would have put his own theology together and put two and two together and gave Elizabeth everything he had, all she would know, all she would know is that she was going to have a baby. He was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That's it. How long would it be between John and the Messiah? 40 years, 50, who knows? John is going to come and he's going to get, bring about a revival and prepare the people. And, you know, she's already up there in age. She's 70 years old. John may not start his ministry till he's 30, 40 years after that, the Messiah comes. Forget the idea of her ever seeing the Messiah. Now, you need to also keep in mind that Elizabeth is probably excited that she's going to have a baby. I would guess this is true at 70 years old. Maybe depression would be a thing for us, but, but she is, she's excited about it. But that's not her most, most incredible point of excitement. Uh, here in the West, we are very much islands. We are very much individuals, but, but major corporate solidarity here. May, the most important thing is the nation. The nation is, is what it's about. I'm secondary to the nation. I sacrifice for the nation, that's fine, because it's all about the nation. And so she knows the Messiah is coming. Not her baby, that's important, but the Messiah is coming. The one who will redeem the nation. The one who's been promised from Genesis 3.15 on, all throughout the Old Testament. He's coming. He's finally going to be here. But she's got some questions in her mind. Well, when's he going to get here? And, and who's going to be the mom? And how's he going to show up? And where is he going to show up? And she's probably asking all of these things because she's so excited about the Messiah, as a Jewish woman would be, from, especially from her pedigree. And all of a sudden, she hears this junior high girl's voice behind her. Hello. Shalom. And the baby, you were asking, who's going to be, where's Messiah at? Who's going to be the mom? There you go. And suddenly she realizes what's going on. So she goes and says in a loud voice, she exclaimed, 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your green reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has de- believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Now, what Elizabeth says here is really nothing shy of extraordinary. If, if you if you look at this in verse uh, forty three. She had said, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That phrase, my Lord, very technical term, has a very special meaning. Verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her would be accomplished, probably referring to God sending Gabriel with the message. In verse uh, 25 of chapter 1, she says, the Lord has done this for me. Uh, louder to be... Be, be with child. Now, if in fact the Lord allowed her to be with child six months before Jesus was conceived in Mary, and if the Lord sent the message that Mary would bear a child before Jesus was conceived within her, then how could Mary be the mother of my Lord? My, I don't want to confuse you here, but you understand what, what she's saying? She's, she knows the baby in Mary's womb is... My Lord is God. And I think this is the, the key message that really left over from last week that Luke wants to drive into Theophilus' mind. That, yeah, last week we told you about Mary and the angel and Mary was a virgin. Maybe you believe that, maybe you won't. But I just want you to know there's a little bit more confirmation going on. She went to talk to uh, Elizabeth. Now, at this point in history, mo- most probably Elizabeth and Zechariah are gone. They're dead. John the Baptist has been killed. But there probably are some folk around who were there when John was born, who knew the story, who could vouch for it. And, and Lucas saying, Theophilus, I'm telling you, Jesus is divine. We, 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 we see it multiple places, in multiple ways. And so that's, that's the primary message. That's what, what Elizabeth recognizes. And then she says in a loud voice, she exclaimed, we have a problem noticing Emotion sometime in scripture. If you look through the text, you see multiple explanation points. Now, in the Greek language, there is no uh, punctuation, but the interpreters don't just throw those, those things in arbitrarily. There's a reason why they put them there. Uh, you know, we think sometimes that Elizabeth, you know, kind of said, oh, oh, my, my baby moved. Oh, Mary, Mary, blessed are you. You know, it's, no, that's not, that's not what happened. Some, with a loud voice, we, <clears throat> Mary, blessed, no, 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 that's not, what's going on here is she is freaking out. Uh, I remember my very first Packers game. Uh, I only been in a couple of Packers games, so I, it wasn't a diehard, you can't get tickets, it's a long story. Uh, but I'd only been in, in town for about a year. And at that point in history, I was still somewhat uh, degenerate. I was a Bears fan at that point. I was from Chicago, so I was a Bears fan. And the Bears were playing the Packers, so someone thought it'd be fun to bring me. And the whole game, the Packers are beating the Bears. Last seconds, uh, Jim McMahon, quarterback of the Bears, throws a touchdown. I mean, 30 yards, great looking thing. I'm still, I'm sitting in the end zone. I can still see this. And I was so excited because time is expiring. As this was play was unfolding, the Bears go up and win. And I just stand up. Well, you know, 40,000 drunk Packer fans going to turn and look at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, but you can't contain that excitement. You, you just couldn't contain it. Have you ever seen like the Miss Universe pageant? 
Not that I recommend this. Don't, if you've never seen it, don't go home and see it. But the Mr. Universe thing. They, they do a good job as far as building this up, don't they? They narrow it down to ten girls. Then they narrow it down to five girls. Then they say the fifth runner-up, you know, is Miss, whatever. And get rid of her, and she cries and hugs. And then the fourth runner-up is, jumps a little bit louder, is so-and-so. And they cry, and they hug, and they go. And there's three girls standing there, and they're all going, oh, and the third runner-up is, and they get rid of another one. There's two gals there. And then it goes quiet. And the man says, okay, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. And you're going, oh, it's the moment I've been waiting for. And he's like, yes, it's the moment you've been waiting for. And, it, and the drums start building. And it goes, and the winner this year is Miss Universe is, you know, Miss Uganda. Yeah! And what does Miss Uganda do? <clears throat> oh, that's, that's nice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's good. That's good. No, 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 no. You've seen this. You know what she does. You know, she, she really freaks out, doesn't she? And she's hugging the people. She's crying. And she's, oh, my God. <laughs> you, you, know, you know the thing. And she's crying. Is this, do you think that this is less than that? We're talking not Miss Universe for a year. We're talking about the Savior of the world promised from, from eons back is coming. It's here. He's in my house. He's in Mary's womb right there. Can you, what do you know? That's where the loud voice comes in. Ah, Mary, I can't can't believe this. God is in my house. How do I be? You know, and Mary's freaking out. Ah. And so then Mary breaks into song. You you, you think for a moment, do you remember when you got, maybe you've never gotten, I hope you have, some incredible, incredible news. Best news you ever got. What happens? You almost can't help but sing, right? I mean, it's, it's happy days are here. So we got something going on. You celebrate something. You got some kind of music. You're just happy. You're so pumped. You're so excited. Because music is the language of the soul. And, and so Mary breaks out in song. She cannot help but break out in song here. And if we could just follow this in Luke 1 and 2, the emotion. Because Zechariah, as soon as he gets his tongue back, because he recognizes that this is really happening, he can't help but break out in song. And then when the angels come to announce Jesus' birth, you know what? They can't announce Jesus' birth without breaking forth in song. And then the lowly shepherds probably couldn't sing, but either way, they are glorifying. They can't do, they can't go tell people about Jesus without breaking forth in song. And then in chapter 2, you've got Simeon, old man just hanging out at the temple, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Mary comes to him one day and puts her baby in his arms. And what's he do? He breaks out in song. Because there's so much emotion going on here at Luke 1 and 2 because of this event, which is a major, major deal for them. And so Mary has her song. Briefly, let me just point out a couple things, and we could do a series on her song. Keep in mind, this is a song of a junior high girl. There are at least 11 references to the Old Testament in here. We're not going to go over them all. But that's important when you realize that Mary could not go to synagogue school. She could not officially be taught the Torah because she was a girl. But she knew this stuff. I think her parents did a, probably, did a pretty good job, huh? So, so Mary breaks forth. And uh, verse 46, Mary said, My soul, and 
If you got a pen right now, I'd pull it out and circle the personal pronouns here. The first person, the my's, my first person personal pronouns are all over the place. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, junior high girl. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary's understanding of God is not like probably the learned men of this day. Maybe the learned guys of much of, of, of today, maybe some of us, maybe all of us at times, Mary's understanding of God is not a separate category, her theology category. She just understands all these different attributes. And she's going to mention some of them. She understands this, but it's, it's, it's a distant thing. Her understanding of God is very personal. Look what he's done for me, my Mary, God, we're, we're, look what, it, it is a personal, personal, personal relationship. Isn't that not what Christmas is all about in the first place? How God loved us so much that he came to visit us that we might be with him. Isn't that the whole, whole goal? Well, that's what Mary is singing out right away. Now, if you, if you think about this for a second, ladies, let me, let me bounce this off of you because you probably would understand more than the men would. What if God came to you and said, I want you to bear my son, Jesus. And you know that you're not a surrogate mom. No, no. Your DNA will be in Jesus. He might have your eyes. And, and, and you get to kiss his owies when he falls. The son of God's owies. You get to, you get to teach God how to walk. And those little pub, pudgy toddler feet. You get to teach him to walk. And when the other kids are, are hurting him or mocking him, you, you can hold him and comfort him. You can read him. You can teach God how to pray. Would you be willing to sign up for this? What a privilege. Now, on this side of the cross, we also know there's a little more to it than that, though. I say, you can do that, but also keep in mind that you're going to lose your reputation. Everybody, other than Joseph and Mary, the angels, are going to think that you were loose. That you really didn't care about God. You care more about your own passions. You, you, you really are lying now, telling everyone this, this angel story. That's going to be your reputation. No matter how hard you try, that's what people are going to believe about you. Also, you need to know that when, the, the, besides the fact that you could lose your family, you could have, Mary could have lost Joseph, and could have lost her life, that one day, your son, you're going to watch him beat up. You're going to watch him betrayed. You're going to watch him rejected. You're going to watch him bloodied. You're going to watch him die a terrible death. You still want to sign up for that plan? Often we think down here that uh, we should have a perpetual, perpetual Disney world. That when God calls us to serve him, that's just the way it should always be. Everything should be good. But, but it's, Jesus modeled it. Yes, there's a crown, but there's a cross. And, and yes, there is, there's joy, but there's sorrow that's going to come with it. And, and whenever he calls us to serve him, yes, there's incredible blessing, but there's incredible pain. And when we, we, we think, well, I'm just going to go for the blessing part, and as soon as the pain kicks in, we're out of there. And Mary certainly, she didn't know that whole story, but she knew a part of it. And she could have said, like many of us say, if she would have burst out in song, I'm going to lose Joseph and I might lose my family and how can people believe me? I'm going to lose my reputation. Why is God doing this to me? I'm just trying, doesn't bind in my own business, just trying to honor him and look, life is so hard for me. She had the right to sing that verse, didn't she? Because that was going to be true for her and she knew that. But gratefulness, 
an understanding of Christ and Christmas, not what I can get, not the sense of entitlement, but God, the privilege of being used by God, regardless of what it's going to cost. Maybe that's Mary's song. Maybe that's what Christmas is about. Mary knows a few things about God. And by the way, you can't just turn on gratefulness. You can't just say, well, okay, I'm going to be grateful today. Gratefulness is a, a byproduct of a mind set on him, a humble spirit set on him. Mary knows a few things about God. Verse 49 says, For the mighty one has done great things for me. Uh, she knows that God not just has all power, but the word could encapsulate here the fact that he knows everything. He knows everything about me. He's got all, all strength. He's everywhere at one time. All of those, those omni attributes can be encapsulated here. Mary knows this about God. And, and if we only know that about God, that can be a little bit scary because if he's having a bad day, if he's just angry for whatever reason, he can just start blasting folk. We just don't want to be in his way if he gets mad, if he's all-powerful. But Mary also knows holy is his name. In other words, he's just. He's all-powerful, but don't worry about it because he's going to do the right thing. And at first we go, well, that's a good deal, okay. But then we realize, hang on, hang on, hang on. He knows everything about me, and he's just. Oh, that's not a good combination because I've done some things that I would just assume him overlook. But because he's just, he can't overlook them. Well, Mary knows the third thing about God. That is, this mercy extends to those who fear him. In verse 47, she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I know that there's a teaching out in some churches that Mary is sinless, but we don't find that in Scripture. We find this, Mary's calling God her Savior. You don't need a Savior unless you're lost. Mary recognizes that that, that all generations will call me blessed because I'm perfect. No, because the Mighty One has done great things for me. Um, Mary understands what so often we forget at Christmas time, that we don't have an entitlement page going on here. We don't deserve any of the blessings. We don't deserve the fact that he called us, that he's forgiven us, that he's given us gifts, that he allows us to serve him. What an incredible privilege. Does it have a cost with it? Absolutely when we do it right. It does. But it's a privilege. Uh, for me, for us, I wonder at Christmas time if my understanding of Christmas is more shaped by Mary's song than the Justin Bieber songs. Uh, what kind of impact might that make? Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for, for Christmas, he talks about when he was a, a uh, religion editor of the Tribune, Chicago Tribune, big paper, intelligent guy, Stanford uh, grad uh, journalism. He was doing a series, religion editor, but he was an atheist. Re, uh, he was doing a, a uh, story on a poor family several weeks before Christmas. So he goes into the Delgados. He says, the Delgados, 60-year-old Perfecta and her granddaughters, Lydia and Jenny, had been burned out of their roach-infested tenement and were now living in a tiny two-room apartment on the west side. As I walked in, I couldn't believe how empty it was. There was no furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls, only a small kitchen table and one handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of possessions. In fact, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny owned one short-sleeved dress each, plus one thin gray sweater between them. When they walked the half mile to school through the biting cold, Lydia would wear the sweater for part of the distance and then hand it to her shivering sister who would wear it the rest of the way. 
But despite their poverty and the painful arthritis that kept Perfecta from working, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced that he had not abandoned them. I never sensed despair or self-pity in her home. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. Now, now Strobel, he writes his article, he prints it, publishes the thing, uh, goes on to other things. But, but this, this testimony, the Degados, is kind of haunting him. And it bothers him a little bit. Matter of fact, he, he would say, I continued to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here was a family that lacked nothing but faith and yet seemed happy. I mean, they lacked everything but faith. It seemed happy. Well, I had everything I needed materially but lacked faith. And inside, I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. Well, come Christmas Eve, it's a low story day, and Strobel makes his way back to the Delgado apartment just to check on him. And when he gets there, he's, he's amazed to see that his readers have responded incredibly. They've got furniture in the apartment and rugs and boxes of food and, and piles of clothes for the girls, even a stack of money on the table that people have sent. But that's not what amazes him. He says, as surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. When I asked Perfecta why... She replied in halting English, Our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. That blew me away. If I had been in their position at that time in my life, I would have been hoarding everything. I asked Perfecta what she thought about the generosity of the people who had sent all these goodies. And again, her response amazed me. This is wonderful. This is very good, she said, gesturing towards the pile. We did nothing to deserve this. It is a gift from God. But, she added, it is not his greatest gift. No, we celebrate that tomorrow. That is Jesus. To her, this child in the manger was the undeserved gift that meant everything. More than material possessions. More than comfort. More than security. And at that moment, something inside of me wanted desperately to know this Jesus. Because in a sense, I saw him in Perfecta and her granddaughters. They had peace despite poverty, while I had anxiety despite plenty. They knew the joy of generosity, while I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope, while I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual, while I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had, or more accurately, for the one they knew. This Christmas, as we focus on Mary's song. So we ask ourselves, what reflects my heart to the world? Christian perspective of Christmas or the worldly perspective of Christmas? Would you pray with me? God, thank you for placing us here. Thank you, God, for the, the, the traditions, the fun. But oh my God, would you deliver us from being shackled there? For this time that you've given us to live in. For the incredible opportunity you've given us uh, to bring Jesus to the world. Just like Mary did, in a sense, you allow us to bring Jesus to this world. God, we, we, we have her heart of gratefulness, of knowing you. In the name of Jesus, amen.